This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The intelligence community will get a new number two if the Senate confirms President Biden's choice. The White House will nominate Stacey Dixon to become principal deputy director of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Dixon would move to ODNI from the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. She's been deputy director there since July 2019. Eli Ratner is the administration nominee to become Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-Pacific Affairs. Ratner was President Biden's Deputy National Security Advisor in the Obama administration. Defense News reports Ratner has been, been leading a review of the department's military posture toward China for Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. The General Services Administration's beta.sam.gov website will look different on Monday. Most of the changes will be cosmetic or aimed at customer experience, according to NextGov. The final merger of the legacy SAM site and the beta site is scheduled for May 24th. President Biden's new skinny budget request includes $500 million for the Technology Modernization Fund. That money would be on top of the billion dollars the fund got in the last coronavirus stimulus bill. Nick Sinai is senior advisor at Insight Partners. He's former deputy chief technology officer in the Office of Science and Technology Policy at OMB. Nick, welcome. It's great to see you again. What's your sense of what's happening with the TMF? What's the trajectory of this look like, given the added money that we're seeing and the conversation around the way that agencies would or should even have to pay the money back? Yeah, I think there's a lot of positive developments here, right? So you see the enthusiasm uh, from Congress. You see the enthusiasm uh, uh, from OMB to, to put additional money here. Um, and so I think that will will unlock a, a number of different applications from from agencies uh, looking looking for for modernization uh, funding. Um, there there is a this this move that you alluded to to um, get more uh, uh, kind of relaxation I should say of the reimbursement requirements. And I know that there were there are certain agencies that simply did not put forward projects. Uh, over the life of TMF, uh, because they they didn't agree with the philosophy of the uh, reimbursement. So uh, um, uh, a number of us have have urged the administration to relax uh, either entirely or partially that that uh, requirement to uh, reimburse. And there are other ways to prove and demonstrate value. Uh, the Taxpayers Act and, and oversight uh, demands it. Um, but I, th I think we can relax it and and get the best uh, modernization projects teed up. What's the difference between relaxing the repayment requirement and just making it changing this money to a standard appropriation? Yeah, we could do a standard appropriation. I mean, my my perspective is is that we, we simply don't have enough uh, money focused on IT modernization. Uh, and that is to, to really move things to the cloud, to use scalable uh, common solutions, to use commercial technology. And so uh, we absolutely should be investing in, in this uh, rather than keeping legacy systems going. And I think that's where the vast majority, something like 80% of the $90 billion a year we spend on IT, uh, goes to kind of keeping systems going. And that's important, right? We have really critical uh, mission systems that are going every year. 
but we have to find ways to invest in, in modernization. And part of that is paying down tech debt, and part of that is investing in commercial uh, solutions. We've talked a lot <laughs> about technical debt on the program in the last week or so, but since you raise it, why is that such a challenge for agencies? Why have agencies had such a hard time paying down their technical debts, Nick? Well, part of the challenge is that we're all excited about how do we show user impact, right? How do we have a, um, a better user experience? Uh, how do we have things that are very visible? I mean, that's part of the criteria on the, um, the TMF uh, website, right? They talk explicitly about, about user impact aligned with mission uh, and improving cybersecurity. But there isn't a whole lot around how do we, how do we actually uh, pay down technical debt because the technical debt is not the kind of thing that that the end user sees. It it kind of increases the, the potential for the team to have velocity of of uh, product uh, of features of capability, but it doesn't actually uh, result in a in a thing um, that end users can see. And so it's the, it's that trade off of investing in the ability to deliver uh, versus the actual delivery of the thing. Um, and in that in that vein, we can do with uh, uh, TMF funding is is invest in, in capacity, uh, and so that that would mean workforce investments that are aligned with IT modernization. And so things like the the digital core, for example, what I've we've talked about this in the past, um, you know, an early career tech fellowship uh, in in federal government uh, that would that could be very aligned with with uh, the goals of TMF. So back to that idea of relaxing the repayment requirement, Nick. What does that look like? Longer amounts of time for the agencies to pay the money back, not have to pay back the full amount. Um, what does that mean for somebody who's thinking about, do I want to try to draw money out of this fund or not? Yeah, I think OMB should just be explicit and say that for, for certain types of projects, we, we are going to say that there, the money is not going to be required to be paid back. Uh, but you are going to have to document the value in very concrete ways. What's the difference between the technology modernization fund at that point then and the reserve fund that the administration proposed in the skinny budget? Or do they all kind of become the same, at least the same idea, if not the same thing? Yeah, I think they're very similar ideas. I mean, there's, there is a, a, uh, um, a process through the TMF and, a, and, and, and oversight to the TMF uh, around specific projects, but maybe maybe there's a different type of transparency. Uh, right now, the, the project that the TMF is asking for is very uh, citizen services facing, and I, I'm a big fan of those. I, I think that we really needed to fund uh, the 21st Century Integrated Digital Experience Act, um, and so this TMF can be a good way to do that, uh, and, and that pairs nicely with the USDS funds. But I think we also can choose uh, our, our, our up projects and then and ultimately select projects that are around um, uh, federal operations, right? Around uh, shared cyber services, uh, around collaboration tools internally. I mean, I, I'd like us to tackle some projects like OMB Max. Like that's a custom-built system that we could, uh, um, you know, with a couple commercial solutions, replicate and have uh, less of an O&M tail and, and have more functionality. We have about a, a little bit more than a minute left, Nick. You may remember when the TMF bill passed Congress, 
the original intent was not just for the TMF fund itself, but for working capital funds at the individual agencies. That idea has kind of wilted on the vine. Does all of this discussion, do you think, kill that idea of working capital funds in the agencies? It sounds like they've kind of been overcome by events. Yeah, it, it does feel like the, it's kind of withered on the vine to use your, your language. Uh, I think those, are, those are, are, are good ideas. I mean, ultimately we have to find ways to, to make it easier for the money to flow to great, modern, scalable commercial technologies and to the teams that are uh, building um, software in a simpler, better way for, for the American people. Uh, and whether we're, we're using you know, revolving loan funds inside the agency, whether we're using TMF, whether we're using kind of uh, programmatic dollars, we have to find a way to, to uh, modernize for the American people. Nick Sinai, thanks very much as always. Great to see you. Thank you, Francis. Up next, the back-to-the-office impact on government money managers. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the pandemic's impact on financial managers and their jobs. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Faisal Amin is the new nominee for chief financial officer at the Environmental Protection Agency. If the Senate confirms him, he'll join a community of CFOs across government that looks different than it did before the pandemic. Simone Reba is principal director at Accenture Federal Services. She's former deputy CFO at the Defense Logistics Agency. Simone, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. How does the back to the office movement that agencies are starting to undertake impact financial managers in your view? Well, first, may I give you a two-minute overview of our recent CFO research that really just addressed that specific issue. Um, it's called CFO Now, Breakout Speed for Breakout Value. And basically, it uh, surveyed about 1,300 CFOs globally in 13 industries in 11 countries. But more specifically, it addressed uh, 100 federal CFOs um, in, in the, the federal government space. And basically what they told us was the, the roles have shifted due to the rapid pace of change and um, basically the level and the power of the data that's available. Um, they're even now more responsible for continu continuity of operations since they have such a large segment of retirees that they're, they're you know, trying to deal with. They how have is more Simone, how is that flow of data changing? What do CFOs have visibility into now that they didn't before? Or what do they have more volume of data-wise that they didn't that they than they had before that kind of thing? Well, as a 30-year veteran of the, uh, as you mentioned, I was the former deputy CFO of DLA, and as a 30-year veteran in the government, and now four years over in the, the commercial sector, um, a lot has changed. Um, they, uh, you know, initially we uh, were doing things off of, actually, when I first started, through calculators and ledger sheets and. Over time, you know, uh, we were able to get more reporting and we started using spreadsheets. Um, but honestly, we spend, we had spent most uh, time historically uh, really trying to gather the data so we could report on it. The way it's changing is that, um, you know, basically the, the new te technology and capabilities are allowing uh, data uh, visibility at a greater rate than they have in the past. 
And because of that, we're able to um, take advantage of that data and stop spending as much time pulling together um, the numbers and trying to figure out what the numbers mean and actually really analyzing the data because it's actually available. That gives the CFO, I imagine, a lot more power in the C-suite, the same way that the CIO is uh, driving more power in the C-suite because the, of the fact that that person is not just the, uh, uh, the, the tech person anymore. That person's a, a contributing uh, decision maker. That's the same thing in the CFO, uh, for the CFO in the C-suite, isn't it? Yes, exactly. So instead of being reporters of the past, right, this is what happened. Instead of being the funding provider, instead of being the compliance guardian, um, we're now taking that data and analyzing it and providing through things like artificial intelligence, providing predictive insights. So, um, you know, we're not just doing what we did, same thing we did last year, plus inflation, we're actually being able to target insights for specific C-suite clients and then helping them develop strategy and do their plans. So what does a successful CFO do in the coming weeks and months in that back to the office play to, to capitalize on that role, to capitalize on that ability to help her or his peers in the C-suite figure out what's coming next. What's the what's the financial management piece that that person can offer? Well, the technology that is available, I think really proved a lot to us about um, all CFOs, about how much easier it is to actually work remotely. And um, that again, that technology is helping not only the C-suite folks, but the finance workforce at large to be able to look at integrated data and um, to be able to break down those silos that happened in the past so that when they're um, pulling together uh, the analysis, they're able to give their, their clients, regardless of what level they are, um, better information that they can use to make more informed decisions so that every dollar spent best supports the mission. Um, we have less than a minute left. What will you watch as people start coming back to the office for potential changes in the financial management community and government, Simone? Well, the first thing is to remember that they're people um, and to treat them in a way that they feel safe and that they're, um, they're able to um, perform well because they, they feel like they've been listened to and that they feel like they are... Um, um, you know, able to produce in a, in, a, in the new environment. Um, and then to, again, to be able to pivot, to reskill, um, to get the skills that they're gonna need in the future to be that, um, that an analytical um, um, uh, employee that's needed to be successful. Simone, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Up next, national security for a new generation. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the pandemic pivot that's making the national work security workforce more equitable. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back.
President Biden has a new executive order about revitalizing the national security workforce. Part of that process will include inspiring the next generation of national security leaders. Catherine Kuzminski is senior fellow and director of the Military Veterans and Society Program at the Center for a New American Security. Kate, welcome. It's great to see you again. Your piece is counterintuitive. Everybody's talking about how burned out they are, how sick they are of Zoom and so on. And you're writing that it's been a wonderful tool for driving equity in the national security community. How so, Kate? That's right. I think that um, using uh, virtual platforms has really democratized access to individuals who work both in government and in the D.C. community writ large. Um, one, on one hand, we've improved the infrastructure so everyone has the, the platforms that we're able to use to connect with those outside of the Beltway. Uh, but more importantly, it's also driven a culture change where we're more open to having uh, conversations with folks that we may not run into organically uh, on the streets of D.C. You make two points in this piece about how uh, people should move forward. The first one is being intentional about connecting. Is that as simple as deciding I'm going to uh, make time X hour with X person or is it more deliberate? Is there more to it than that, Kate? I think there's there's some um, two ways that we can balance that. One is managing our time. So certainly the Zoom fatigue is real um, and we're all experiencing that. But treating your time as an investment uh, in the next generation of national security leaders, thinking perhaps about um, kind of the, the academic office hour model where perhaps you're investing a half an hour every Friday and someone's only two hours a month. Um, and then being really intentional about uh, connecting with folks who are outside of the traditional DC bubble, um, making it known that you're, you're open to having those conversations um, or, or participating in some great organizations that are out there that uh, structure it for you. So one great example is Girls Security that connects leaders in the national security community with uh, girls in high school and college across the country. It strikes me that this platform, that, that this kind of worldview allows us to be more deliberate and to be more uh, successful in getting outside the bubble, because if you're looking around anyway, you might as well look across the entire landscape rather than just the people that you wander across as you're walking down K Street. That's right. And I think it's it's twofold. One, it's uh, service to the field and the, the future national security leaders and the mentorship that that uh, current national security leaders are able to provide, but it's also increasing our access to talent across the country to individuals who we may have previously overlooked. Um, and as we've seen over the past five to 10 years, there is a real um, difference in perspective that those inside the Beltway and those outside the Beltway have, and that's a great way to connect the two and to access the talent that might be available elsewhere. The second point that you make here is connecting in the post-pandemic world as an important element of continuing this. And you're right, when the pandemic era is over, I want to find a way to continue reaching the next generation of national security talent nationwide. I may be reading between the lines, but maybe the most important word in that sentence, Kate, is nationwide, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. So thinking about um, all the great talent that's coming out of state schools in the Midwest, I'm a proud graduate of, of a Midwestern state school, um, and thinking about ways to um, show them a, a promote a, a um, a path into government service uh, before they're able to physically relocate and have more informal coffees with individuals to find out what does the field look like? 
what are some of the, the ways to succeed? How do I meet people who um, may be in positions of, of hiring individuals? Um, and thinking about how to plan out a national security career, which is a little less uh, straightforward than, than perhaps some other career fields that they may be used to. You write in this piece about the kinds of resources that you believe people should offer to folks once you kind of get into that relationship, that connection with them. How do you plan personally to fulfill that sentence that I just read, to turn that from a wish, a want to, into an I'm doing? So there's a couple of things. One, uh, most DC think tanks have shifted to a virtual environment for their events. Um, and those have been some of the most um, educational uh, experiences that I've had, uh, a lunchtime panel on a very niche topic. Um, and I think once the pandemic is over, uh, we're still going to see that the shift to those events is going to be both virtual and in person. So being able to provide a list of those types of events to individuals who may not be able to make it to a lunchtime event downtown DC. Um, also thinking about all the great resources that are already out there, uh, keeping a running list of podcasts and, and publications um, and, and shows like yours uh, that, that can give sense of folks a sense of what uh, the, the current thinking is, what some of the current debates are so that they can more easily slot themselves into a position um, in the future. I appreciate the plug, any opportunity you have to give one for it, Kate. <laughs> um, how will you measure a year or three years or five years out whether you've been successful and whether your peers have been successful in kind of spreading the word and, and kind of opening the aperture to this uh, community? So I think the thing that will be permanent is the infrastructure piece. Um, I think that will uh, that every um, employer will have a, a, some sort of virtual platform for communicating with individuals. But the real change will be seen whether or not the culture maintains where um, I think there will be a lot more hybrid type events that um, include both those who can show up in the audience and those outside of the audience. Um, and I think the same will be true for mentorship and, and reaching out to individuals to, to mentor them along the career path. Kate, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to see you again. Thank you. You can find a link to her piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website too. You get a preview of every program. When you sign up for our daily program guide, you just text govmatters to 58671. Back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes about how government can use software to find wide area networks to deliver the best digital experience for constituents and staff. Government agencies are continuing the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Vehicle, EIS, 
for telecom-related services. Industry experts are calling on agencies to use it for citizen-facing government. Tony Bardo is here. He's Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes Network Solutions. Tony, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What does the EIS vehicle provide for agencies to make these kinds of transitions, to do the network modernization that they need to do? It's a great question, uh, as you always do lead off with, uh, Francis, and it's good to see you again, talk to you again. But uh, here's, it, it's more interesting really to talk about what it hasn't uh, delivered yet. And uh, GSA fa faced an interesting conundrum when they were uh, putting EIS together and it was necessary to do so and they had the right vision for it and the right ideas to bring in some new blood and new new vendors and new kinds of companies. But the the services available to to the government at the time were still the same services that have been around for 20 years. Um, and that is the the MPLS network um, services that worked during the end of FTS 2001 and throughout the networks contract. So um, the, the the new services, the new modern services were just emerging. These are the new SD-WAN, the managed broadband services, and these are the kinds of services that are better equipped for handling the large surge and surges of bandwidth demand for the agencies, particularly at the edge. So what was what the agencies were sort of presented with was, here's a new contract and it's got a new timetable and it's got a new scope of work and a new span of work and a new body of, 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 uh, of a performance period, but it didn't really have the new services that met the goal or the, the mantra of transforming. So what we saw in some of the early um, fair opportunities that uh, that the agencies were issuing, and it really took them a long time to start issuing them, um, but they 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 were basically asking for like for like services, and that wasn't really a uh, a plan for transforming, and it didn't. The, many of the fair opportunities, unfortunately, did not show the the vision for transforming. SD-WAN was emerging, so it was a tough call. It was a, you know, we've got to get this contract, new contract out, because the old contract is aging, it's expiring, it's got its uh, limited time frame. So it was an interesting, um, you ask an interesting question. It, it, the platform really wasn't ready there to, to, uh, to transform and leap into transformation and modernization. It's starting to happen, though. You uh, gave me a term before we started recording, and I want to tell, want you to tell me what it means and why it's important. Managed service provider, why does that matter to agencies, and, and why is that concept helpful to them in these transitions, Tony? The concept, concept is really helpful because the, the, pro, the providers and the services and managing them um, makes it easier for the agencies. These, these agency telecom managers have really got it tough. They 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 have this they have this contract that they were uh, compelled to use and and encouraged to use, and they wanted to modernize. Uh, they're running their own networks today every day. They have to issue these fair opportunities to compete the business among the 
uh, providers, the, the prime uh, contractors on EIS. And they've got to do it all at the same time and all with the same workload and workforce that they that they have. So these are really, really tough. Getting Obtaining managed services takes the burden off of the limited staffs of the agencies and lets the lets the um, service providers do the work. So managed service providers can then um, offer these services, manage the networks, manage the uh, security aspects of the networks, manage the routing of the traffic on the networks through the modern architectures of broadband, managed broadband, and managed SD-WAN. Tony, there's always more great ideas to talk about than there is time to talk about them. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. Take care.